before our scripture reading, I just want to mention a, a word about our anniversary. We've been working for some time to celebrate our anniversary. It is about what God has done in this ministry in 25 years. We're going to have a dinner for that anniversary time, and so uh, we're going to be giving you uh, more details. But one of the things that we're trying to do is have a dinner where we can all uh, fellowship together and not have to prepare the meal for ourselves. So we're going to have a, a meal that's going to be catered in. We don't have to prepare ourselves. We don't have to cook. Um, and uh, most of the food preparation and cleanup will be done uh, outside of us. So that's going to allow us the time to really fellowship and enjoy our time together. Uh, with that, there is a cost. And so we're going to ask families to contribute and individuals to contribute. Um, and I think we had $15 and $40, 15 per individual and uh, 40 per family or of two or more. Is that the right price, guys? Is that? I think we said that. Per individual uh, or more than, a family of more than two or $40. So um, you, uh, we'll let you know more details of how we're going to collect that. But if you would... Uh, keep that in mind and help us celebrate uh, a big event of what, what God has done in, in this church. Our scripture reading now comes from Hosea chapter 6. Please turn there in your Bibles. And as you turn there, if you would, let us stand together. How about we try that again? Please be seated. We're here for worship. So when it's time to stand, I think we ought to stand enthusiastically, like we want to worship God and read his word. Let's stand together. Amen. Hosea chapter 6, we'll be reading that entire chapter, just 11 verses. So follow along with me as I read. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defied, defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes 
of my people. God, give us understanding this portion of scripture that we read this morning and be preaching from Hosea chapter 6. To remain standing, let's bow for a time of prayer. After prayer, choir will come for music, for a special song, and then the preaching of God's word today. Father, we thank you for this time together. We pray, Lord, that you would cleanse our hearts, forgive us of sin, and allow us to come before you in worship. Allow us to receive your truths, to understand them. And that your Holy Spirit might give us understanding and also challenge our hearts in obedience to you. Encourage our hearts in your great holy character and in your loving kindness, your steadfast love towards us. Encourage our hearts in serving you because of who you are. Then we thank you for this week. We thank you for your provisions, for your keeping us. Uh, we think of Mickey and a car accident and how you protected her. We ask that you continue to watch over her. We thank you for Shale and for just allowing her to uh, get results from a procedure that, that are okay. And We thank you for that. We thank you for your protection of each one of us, Lord, and watching over us. We, we thank you for that, allowing us to come here today to, to come and worship you. And um, Lord, we just pray that we would give our hearts, we would give our energy, we would give our souls to loving you and serving you in the place that you've appointed us right here, being faithful to you as you are faithful to us. We just pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. text this morning is found in Hosea chapter 6, as we read earlier, 11 verses. Great start in verse 1, where it says, Come, let us return to the Lord. It's a plea. It's a plea from the prophet to God's people. Come, let us return to the Lord. God has not left his people. His people have strayed away from him. And the prophet's plea is, come, welcome, come back, return to the Lord. And then it gives us the purpose in God's discipline. He says this, he has torn us that he may heal us. He has torn us that he may heal us. It's important for us as God's people to understand what God does when he disciplines us. That he's not just given us a difficulty in our life just to make our lives difficult. He has a purpose in mind. And you know, when we go through difficulties, we don't always know what's happening behind the scene. Uh, if you're like me, you, you, you know that your own failures, your own sin is present before you. And that God could easily punish or judge you for that. And our guilt oftentimes 
rules our thinking. But what should rule our thinking is the Word of God as it guides us into the mind of God. Our experiences can often um, distort our thinking. We have experiences as we interact with, in this world, experiences of interacting with other people. But we need to remember they are not God. And they don't always respond as God responds. And they don't do things for the same reason that God does them. I kind of remember the life of Joseph. You remember as a young man, he was very young. He was next to the youngest in his family. And because God favored him, his brothers hated him. And his brothers did some, some mean and ugly things to him. They treated him very roughly and very poorly. And, and he must have wondered, what did I do to deserve this? But God was doing something behind the scene that wasn't apparent at this time in Joseph's life. And from that story, we, we gain an understanding that God allows us sometimes to experience some things to bring us on a path to where he wants to bring us. It's not necessarily a judgment or a punishment, but even if it is, it's done for the purpose of guiding us. It says here, I like this, it says, he has struck us down and he will bind us up. Right before that it says, he has torn us that he may heal us. Sometimes we feel like we have been afflicted by God. But we need to keep in mind why he does what he does. What is his purpose? What is his motivation? What is he going to accomplish through this? We don't like it. We don't like the toil. We don't like the hardship. We don't like the thing that God introduces into our lives. But we need to understand, and this is where our faith comes in, that God is who he is. He is, he is a loving and gracious God to his children, and he disciplines them with a purpose in mind. He tears them sometimes that he might heal. And I, I know we, we, while we're going through it, we understand. We, we, we're like, why do we have to hurt? Why do we have to be torn? Well, it's not a tear just to inflict pain. It's a tear to bring healing. It's like the surgeon's cut. The surgeon does. He puts us under anesthetics and, and, and so that we can be cut and it not just produce pain. That's going to produce some pain. We get away from it a little bit, but when we come through, we... we gradually feel that pain, but that pain was necessary so that the healing could take place. Have you experienced something like that in your life? I'll tell you what happens when God cuts you. Satan is whispering and sometimes yelling behind the scenes. See that? That's what God did to you. You know what God says in his word? Look what it says in verse 1. He has torn us. God doesn't deny <laughs> Yes, I'm in control. I allowed you to go through that. But you need by faith to understand from my word why. What am I doing in your life? 
He has torn us. Why? That he may heal us. That's that ugly, nasty whisper in our ear from Satan that this is not true. That God's way is going to be not only difficult, it's going to destroy us. But God says, no, I will tear you, yes, so that I may heal you. I will strike you, yes. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. It's interesting in verse 2, it is not a coincidence, it is not an accident, the words that are used in verse 2. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Our eyes perk up immediately when we hear that. After three days, he will raise us up. We understand how that points to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is said here is that this is, God, this is how God works in his people. Let's, let's explain it first of all. After two days, he will revive us. He's saying that the affliction sometimes seems to linger and seems to be long, but it soon comes to an end. After two days. Two days seem long, like a long period, but after that period, it's over, and then the blessing and the healing comes. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. So there's a couple things saying there is that God uses the process that sometimes seems like a long time, but he has an end to it. He has a purpose for it. And after that, there is healing, there is life, there's a raising up. He also says this, and we see this completed in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who took the punishment for our sin. He received what we should have justly received. He was afflicted. He was struck down. He was wounded for our sin. And after three days, it is the Lord God who raised him up. God the Father raised him up. God the Father revived him. God will, just like he did to Jesus, raise us up and revive us. Israel was going to go through a time of chastisement, punishment, and judgment that was brought on by God. This time was going to come to an end, and at the end of that time, God would bring life to them again. God's people would experience this. You say, well, in what way does this happen to Israel? Well, it happens very specifically in the Lord Jesus Christ who represents his people. So God doesn't require his people to go through the judgment. It's Jesus that takes on the judgment for us. It is Jesus who struck down. It is Jesus who was put to death. It is Jesus who's raised up again on the third day. Look at the end of verse 2. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. He's saying the purpose of affliction that God brings is to discipline us, to bring us to life, that we might have a life of living in obedience to him, and that even further than that, we might live eternally with him. And we might live 
that we might really live, that we might live forever. This is the discipline. But ultimately, that discipline was not placed on me and you. That discipline was placed on Jesus so that that sin would be paid for and that I might live and that I might live forever. I want you to see the gospel spoken of here in the Old Testament. God has this in mind. It's, 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 it's not a side issue. It is the very thing that he's doing for his people. He has a purpose in his discipline. If you look at Hebrews chapter 12, um, we're reminded there, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, reminded of God's purpose in his discipline. It says, And you have not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The emphasis is on the son, the son relationship that we have. We are children, we are sons, we are children of God the Father. And how does he act towards his children? He disciplines them. Verse 5, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. God loves you. He disciplines you. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? And so what he says is this is how God treats those who are genuinely connected to him in relationship. He disciplines them. He has a purpose in doing that, and that is to bring them closer to him, that they might return with him, that they might live before him, and that they might live eternally. So God disciplines us in order to heal us, in order to revive us. Secondly, we can add to that, that he disciplines us for our good. For our good. Not just because he's mad and somebody's got to pay, but he does it for our good. He says here, In verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? He goes to the point of saying you ha you've had earthly fathers who've disciplined you. And this is where I said sometimes our experience distort our proper view of what God is doing. Some of us have been disciplined in, in wrong ways. And we bear the marks of that. And so we, we have this attitude of, of, you know, that's the wrong thing to do. I kind of think the world kind of takes that, that point of view is that, you know, discipline, parents ought not to discipline their children in, in specific ways because that's been abused sometimes. But parents who do it properly do it not just because they're angry or not just as a punishment for punishment's sake. They do it for the good of that child to build the character 
of that child. So that child might learn how to live. They have a gracious purpose in mind. Go back to our text and we can see God's purpose in mind. That he wants us to bring us to him. Again in verse 2, after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, verse 3 says, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. God is doing this to bring us into relationship with him, that we might be connected to him, that we might know him. That, that, that word know has not just to do with uh, 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 intellectual knowledge, but a, 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 a relationship that develops uh, a, a deep intimate relationship that God wants to uh, continue to uh, um, work in us and, and within us. Notice how it's expressed here. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord for his going out is sure as the dawn. Saying you can trust God's discipline in your life because he is faithful. As sure as the dawn, as sure as the sun rising and, 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 and setting the next day, that's going to happen. Whether the clouds come and it's kind of shielded from our view or not, it still happens. God is faithful. God is sure. We can trust him. Then notice the next picture. He will come to us as the showers, verse 3, as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. The shower and the spring rain is pictured as a, 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 as a revitalizing, refreshing, renewing water that falls gently to the earth. It's not a flood that's pictured here. It's a gentle shower that, the, that a parched land desperately needs. It's that gentle rain. So God's discipline is pictured that way. We've taken note of various pictures as we go through Hosea. That's, that's God's way of communicating to us in, in ways that help us understand a little bit. So it's not a destructive flood. It's a gentle, refreshing, revitalizing, renewing shower or spring rain that God's judgment does. He doesn't does discipline or correct us to destroy us. He disciplines and corrects us to revitalize, to renew, to refresh us, to bring life where we were barren before. Isn't that a good picture? Verse 4 continues. Notice the thought here. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? We said before that Ephraim is just another term for Israel. Judah is, is then that, that, that second uh, that split that the, the nation of Israel had gone through through the northern and the southern tribe. God is expressing his desperation with their unfaithfulness. Notice that, that God expresses this. What can I do with you? It's like saying, oh my goodness, this is not good. He's talking about their unfaithfulness, their sin. The agony that God experiences. He had Hosea go through that experience. You can imagine Hosea saying, 
Gomer, what am I to do with you? I don't understand your unfaithfulness. It, 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 it's agonizing to me. I would wish that I could turn off my love for you so I wouldn't, wouldn't have to be hurt. That's what a lot of people do today. They think, you know, if somebody, if they love someone, they are vulnerable to that person. And so that person, when they're unfaithful, it hurts them. And they wish they can just turn that love off. But we know it, it's not that simple. It's not that easy. We are connected to that person. God shares the agony of someone who has been in, a, in, a, in an unfaithful relationship. He says, oh, Israel, what am I to do with you? In essence, he's saying, I love you, but you're going to go through judgment, but I don't want to, 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 to see hurt come to you. He agonizes over his experience. God understands and feels our agony in relationships. God knows what that's like. In verse 5, he speaks. Oh, let me finish in verse 4. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Whenever we see the word like, and then we see something else that's an example or a picture, it's another beautiful picture. Here it says the morning cloud or the early dew. You know what he's saying? He said, your love is so fickle. It is so fickle. It's now, here, now, springs up, and then it's gone. Just like that, it's gone. Like the morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. He, he expresses there. The dew is there, but then as soon as the sun comes out, it's gone. It's like it never happened before. Easy come, easy go. It's not dependable. It's not trustworthy. It's not something that he could depend and trust in. That's how Israel's love was for God. Then it goes into verse 5. And verse 5 is speaking of God's judgment. Remember we said in, in Hosea, we often see two things pictured together. We see God's judgment against those who sin and turn against God. And yet at the same time, we see a picture of God's, God's patience, his love, and his grace, and his mercy in to, to forgive those who have sinned. We see both of those together. So in verse 5, he pictures, I want you to look at some of the pictures of his judgment. Verse 5, therefore I've hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. The them is the people who have sinned, Israel. And what does he do? He's hewn. He's cut them out. He has slain them by the words of my mouth, he says. In verse 5, in verse 5, and my judgment goes forth as the light. He's hewn them by the prophets. He's used the prophets to cut this stone, so to speak. He has slain them by the words of his mouth. He has identified and condemned them by the words of the prophet's mouth. And that's what he has done. And then he says this in verse 5. My judgment goes forth as the light. What does light do? Light exposes wrong, exposes sin. 
Jesus says men love darkness. In John, he said men love darkness because their deeds are evil. It's, it's light that exposes and makes things known. And he says there that um, his judgment goes forth as the light to expose sin of his people. Verse 7. Excuse me, verse 6. We see what God wants. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. God says here that he wants genuine love and genuine worship and not just fake or stuff that's just, just put out there for show. Notice how he frames this. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Was he saying he didn't desire sacrifice or didn't require sacrifice? Certainly he required that they sacrifice. Sacrifi sacrificing was a, a form of worship to God, and, and God wanted that. But here what he's saying is he wanted them to serve and to worship him with a true heart. Not just by doing things, but by having a true, faithful, committed, loving heart. God desires this from his people. God desires this from us. We worship today. God doesn't want us just going through the motions, but he wants us with our whole heart, genuinely hearted to serve him, to love him, to submit to him. And what he's saying is Israel is often going through the motions. They would bring sacrifices, but God says, I'm not impressed by that. You remember the story in 1 Samuel 15 of, of, uh, of Saul? God had given Saul instruction to destroy this nation and this king and his people, to totally destroy them. God was bringing down his judgment on that nation, and he told Saul that he ought to destroy them. He ought to destroy all the people. He ought to destroy all the animals. He ought to destroy everything uh, from that people. And, and Saul thought better of it. He thought he would save some. And he came, God had sent his prophet um, to confront Saul. Samuel went to Saul, and Saul says, hey, look, I did what God told me to do. And Samuel says, what? What is this I hear in my ear? I hear bleeding of sheep. He says, I hear the sound of sheep that you have saved instead of destroying. He says, you did not do what God called you to do. And then he says this. You can turn there. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, he says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. And one of the excuses that, that Saul had given, he said, you know what, well, I've saved the sheep so we can come and give it to the Lord as, a, as an act of worship. Samuel says, God didn't need that. In fact, God doesn't even want that. What God wants is your obedience to him, your complete obedience. Now, is that saying that you shouldn't give a sacrifice? No, it's not saying that. It's saying that you should give, you should give, render to God full obedience along with your sacrifice. That's what God requires from his people. 
God doesn't want phonyism. Most people take that to say, well, since I'm not genuine, I'm going to stop doing everything. That's true to a sense. God sees right through it. But what he offers is to be genuine and to serve him from the heart. How many times do believers repent? Over and over and over and over and over again. And that's the way it should be. Because when we recognize that our heart isn't right, we say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to serve you out of a genuine, repentant heart. My heart isn't right, Lord. I want to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so we repent. The other thing is to do is say, well, my heart ain't right. I just ain't going to serve the Lord. That's not repenting. It's confessing, but it's not repenting. It's admitting something that's true, but it's not repenting. Repentance has us turn from sin and then turn and humble ourselves and obey God. That's what God would have us to do. So he says, don't keep bringing me to sacrifices if you don't also repent and turn to me and offer me genuine worship. That's why Jesus could say to the Pharisees who were always praying, always having these public displays of worship, he says, you know, the, 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 the harlots, the prostitutes, the, the uh, uh, people who steal people's money, the tax collectors, they're better than you because they actually repent. But you in secret act like you're righteous and you bring all of these sacrifices and acts of worship, but your heart doesn't worship from within. God wants that genuine heart worship. Now back in Hosea chapter 6. They should have repented, but instead, he says, verse 7, but like Adam... They transgressed the covenant. Look at the other terms he uses in verse 7. They dealt faithlessly. In verse 8 he says, Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. He's saying they have gone away from the word of God, the covenant that God has put down. They have dealt faithlessly. In other words, they, they, they have stopped trusting and, 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 and bringing faith or putting their faith in God and they've gone off to other gods and other things. What happens when you begin to do that? It says they're a city of evildoers. And so it, it begins to grow. It's a, impacting a greater number of people. The whole city says, it says there's evildoers. You see violence there. It says they're tracked with blood. They become violent, and we certainly see that in our society today, that violence is very much a part of, 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 of our lives. We see it all over. They were committing crimes of robbery, and in fact, look at verse 9, it's, it's not just the general people. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. He's saying the, the priests were robbing and ripping people off, stealing from people. Verse 
Verse 9, as murderers, or excuse me, as robbers lie in wait for man, so the priests band together, they murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. The word villainy, look up in the dictionary, it means outrageous wickedness. Not just wickedness, but outrageous wickedness. It's describing not only God's people, but the spiritual leaders. The priests were involved in this kind of behavior. So God is, 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 is pointing to their sin, identifying their sin. He says in verse 10, he says, In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. This sin has brought God's people down. You can see why, why he is bringing judgment to them. But then he gives us kind of a little twist at the end. You wonder, why does it go like that? We see their sin. We see a, a great cause for God's judgment in their lives. But look at verse 11. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. That's kind of a tricky phrase because a harvest usually is a picture of something good. You talk about a harvest coming, we, thought, we think about seed that has been planted and, and the growth that comes from that, the crops that come from that are now matured and we're ready to enjoy the fruit. We're ready to enjoy the fruit of a long labor that has planted seed, seen it grow, watered it, cultivated it, and now we harvest it. We go pick the fruit and we, we clean it and we're ready to enjoy the fruit. So harvest is usually something that's picturing a good thing, but something's wrong here. He said this harvest is appointed. God has appointed a time. So what he has in mind is not a good thing. He's just talked about his judgment. And so there's an appointed time that God's judgment is coming. The seed of wickedness has, has been planted. It has grown. It has it is, it is reached its fullness. God is ready to pick it, harvest it, and judge it. We kind of see that pictured in the in the gospel when Jesus uses uh, parables to speak at, at how the angels are the ones who are coming at harvest time. And harvest time there is pictured as the judgment of God. They will pick the fruit or the crops that have grown and he will take them and he will burn them. This harvest speaks of a judgment. It's a, judge, a judgment that has an appointed time that God is going to bring about. But something else happens with that. He says at the end of verse, three, verse 11, when I restore the fortunes of my people. Now, that, there's no way of getting around it. That's a good thing. God is going to restore the fortunes of his people. And so he's talking about here, there's going to be two what I would call contrasting events. Two things that, that seem to be uh, 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 happening at the same time but are very much different uh, from each other. And so uh, he, he brings these two that he is going to bring a harvest and he's going to restore. He's going to restore the fortunes of his people. You know how much this lines up with Scripture. 
you look through the book of Revelation and you see two things that seem to happen at the same time. God is going to bring to an end the wickedness in this world by judging it in his judgment. And at the same time, he's going to take his people, deliver them from this event and reserve them for the blessing that he has for them in heaven. He says, For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. It's also interesting that he's speaking to Judah, who should be his people, but in fact they have been disingenuous, they have been faithless, they have sinned, they have turned away from the Lord. God is patient, he's inviting in, but the people he invites in, the ones he's going to restore, and when he says restore the fortunes of his people, how is it that there is a harvest of judgment and a restoration of his people at the same time? It is because many of those who think that they are his people actually aren't. They are his people only in, 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 in the way that they look, in the, the, the steps that they go through. They offer a sacrifice, but it is a, it is a false sacrifice. It's not genuine. They don't worship from their hearts, but yet God has reserved for himself a people who are genuine. He is going to restore the fortunes of his people. It's odd to me that in the midst of talking about judgment, God goes back to talking about his grace, his mercy, and his love, how he's going to restore his people amazing. It gives us a little bit of insight into the mind of God, into the grace of God. Read through again in verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. He's pleading with his people to repent. He's pleading with them to come, to turn from their sin, and to turn to him. And at the end of this chapter, in verse 11, he says, when I restore the fortunes of my people, he says, there are some who are going to come and are going to turn to me. In the middle of this, we see the Lord Jesus Christ in his action. He's the one who was paid for the sin of his people. He's the one that's been struck for the sin of his people. He's been revived. He's the one after three days has been raised up and he's allowed his people to live before God the Father. So God has two contrasting things going on. He has his judgment for those who are not his true people and have not turned back to him and have not repented. But he has his true people that's not limited to the people of Israel, but that are his people that he will restore and bring them to himself. How does he do that? He does that through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a new covenant. There's a new relationship that is being made to God through the Lord Jesus Christ and through him only. None will have access to God in any other way, including all of former Israel and anybody else who was connected that way. There is no other way to God except through the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who trust in God rest in his promise. They believe what he has in store for them. And they put their trust in this Jesus who's died for their sin. It's through Christ that we have the blessing of being 
God's people and being restored to God in this great way. Which event will you be a part of? Who are you trusting in? And are you a repenter that continually comes to God, humbles himself, and trusts in the person that he has placed to pay for our sin? That's not just a one-time event that you do, but because you have done that or are doing that, you continue to trust in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You continue to trust in what Christ has done to pay for our sin. That's why we worship God. That's why we give ourselves in, in service to him because of the great thing that he has done for us. He has shown us mercy that we don't deserve. He has poured out his his grace to us. He has restored us. Because he's doing that, we understand his process of discipline in our lives, that he brings difficulty in our lives, yes, sometimes, to heal us, to bind us, to bring us back and bring us closer to him. He has a gracious purpose in mind as he works in our lives. Be open to that purpose. Say yes to that purpose. Submit to his purpose in your life. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how you reveal your grace and your goodness, and you also reveal your judgment. And we appreciate them together because they both come from you. Most of all, we appreciate being the beneficiaries, those who will receive your blessing. I pray, Lord, if anyone here doesn't know that they are the beneficiaries of your blessing, doesn't know how to come about that, that they would today recognize it is through Jesus and they will come trust in Jesus, what he has done to pay for their sin. Lord, I pray that those of us who know Christ will continue to walk in him, being faithful to you, loving you, serving you with a true heart. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen.